This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, our author this afternoon, uh, Ibtihaj Muhammad, uh, is already uh, well known to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, she gained national and, and international fame at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro as the first woman wearing a hijab to compete for the United States uh, in the World Games and the first female Muslim American to medal at the Olympics. She was, of course, a member of the women's saber team that won a bronze. In her new book, Proud, An Unlikely American Dream, uh, Ibtihaj recounts her journey from her hometown in Maplewood, New Jersey, through her start at, uh, at fencing at age 13, and on to international competitions. The journey included moments of joy and exhilaration, but also periods of anxiety, isolation, and despair, as she felt shunned by her teammates and coach, and even received death threats that she says neither the U.S. Fencing Association nor the Olympic Committee took seriously. Uh, confronted by anti-Muslim hostility, Ibtihaj writes of how f her faith and the support of her family helped sustain her. Not only did Ibtihaj work hard at uh, perfecting her fencing, uh, she also learned to use her notoriety, becoming a spokesman and role model for women in sport. She serves as a sports ambassador for the U.S. State Department, co-founded Athletes for Impact and the clothing company Luella, and inspired Mattel to create the first Barbie in her likeness wearing a hijab. Uh, hers is an empowering and inspirational story for many, uh, but especially for younger people. And in recognition of that, a separate Young Readers edition of Proud has been published this month along with the adult version, and we have both at the checkout desk. The adult version has the sil silver cover, and the Young Readers version has the blue cover. Uh, Ibtihaj will be in conversation with Br Brittany Packnett, who is Vice President of National Community Alliances for Teach for America. Uh, where she leads a team engaging in partnerships with communities and children of color. She's also a co-founder of Campaign Zero, a policy platform to end violence, and she's a current Aspen Institute Education Fellow. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in wel welcoming Ibtihaj Muhammad and Brittany Packnett. Hello, everyone. You can, you're, okay. We're gonna have to try that again. Here's why. We were just backstage rapping, like we were having a good time. We're ready to have a good time with you all. So again, hello, everyone. There we go. All right, now we're warmed up. We're all family, so we're gonna be in this together. My name is Brittany Packnett. I'm so excited to be with you all and so excited to be with an entire hero. Like, I don't, they emailed me and they were like, do you wanna do this talk? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> who wouldn't want to? So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us here in Washington, D.C. to talk about these amazing books that you have for us um, and to talk a little bit about your journey. Yes, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, I've looked up to you for a long time. I appreciate your work. I think that we all do in our own way. And we're excited to have you here today. Appreciate that. Thank um, you. Yeah, so I'm going to actually get started. Let's do it. I'm going to open with a passage from my book. And it's actually just the first few, uh, the first few paragraphs. 
So if you haven't read it yet, um, I will start it for you. <laughs> Muhammad, her voice trailed off. The substitute teacher, Miss Winter, squinted and brought the list of names of the on the attendance sheet closer to her face. She was stuck, and I could guess why. She was looking at the seven letters in my first name and wondering how to pronounce it. Is your last name Muhammad? She asked, her eyes fixed on me, the only fourth grader in the classroom wearing a hijab, who happened to be sitting in the front row. Yes, I nodded. My eyes stayed glued in front of me. And how do you pronounce your first name, young lady? She asked. It's Ib T Hajj, I said, pronouncing each syllable as slowly as possible. It's pronounced just like it's written, I added. That usually helped people understand how to say my name, but it didn't help Miss Winter. She made another face, the kind of face you make when your mouth lands on something bitter. Oh, that's too hard, she said, shaking her head no and scribbling something down on the attendance sheet. We're going to call you Ipti. Wow. So when I first read that, I was struck by her determination to call you something other than your name. Why did you start your story this way? Oh, because it's it's interesting. That's one of my earliest memories of the nickname Ipti, but also something that I still get asked as an adult. Uh, yesterday um, at an interview, uh, one of the producers said, you know, what can we call you? And my response like, now, my name. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> well, you mean other than my name? Yeah. I was like, let me think about it. You know, <laughs> it's like queen. Uh, <laughs> Beloved. Right. <laughs> I like that. Hero. Right. Medalist. Olympian. <laughs> any of that works. Any of those things work. Um, so it's it, like in my family, everyone calls me by my full name. Um, now that I have nieces and nephews, they call me like they call me Kala, which is Arabic for aunt. But no one calls me Ifti in my family. And not that um, like I have friends and teammates that call me Ifti, but my earliest memories of that nickname were not positive. And I think that there are so many people who can identify with other people determining what your identity should be, right? Whether it is your name, your race, your religion, whatever that is, folks deciding for you who you're going to be. And so I just found that moment so identifiable right there in the beginning, and it just captured me. There was another thing that you said um, about why you decided to write this book. A few paragraphs later, you said that you, you decided to write this book because you wanted people to understand your journey from then to now um, and that that journey was a, about releasing yourself from society's boxes and showing up to the party when an invitation was not extended to you what I wrote in the margins was woo because I understand that right I understand showing up and people are like what are you doing here you don't belong um, so and, and I really appreciate the way in which you've embraced all of the intersections of your identity. So often we want to just struggle for women's rights or we want to just struggle against Islamophobia or we want to just struggle for racial justice. Right. But you are walking around with all of these identities at once uh, in places where people are not necessarily welcoming to that. So what do you, have you learned about embracing all of those intersections and what can we learn as we try to make sure that our fights for justice are truly intersectional? Well, I think that it's important that we not only, not only think about ourselves and things that um, that directly affect us, but also think about the greater community and that people who may not look like us, who may not have similar struggles to us. And I think that that's something that I've learned through faith and uh, through being a Muslim. But I know that 
I feel like I've always had this greater calling that extends beyond sport. And my path to qualifying for an Olympic team and representing the U.S. at the, you know, the highest level of sport is unique in a sense that um, no one thought that it could happen for me and no one expects that for someone who looks like me. But at the same time, I think that it, it really is just a stop along a journey to something bigger. And, and part of that something bigger is inspiring people beyond fencing, beyond sports, right? So is, is that part of the reason why you decided to write a young reader's version of the book as well? Can you tell us about the differences between the two? Yeah, so I um, started fencing at a really young age. And our family, we were uh, encouraged to participate in sport in a way that I would say is not really traditional. It's not like, um, you know, like hey, do you want to go out there and join this team? Do you want to do this? My parents were like, you're joining the team, right? <laughs> it was like, we really had no option. And I think that that is unique to African-American culture where there's this value in organized sport. Um, but also we played outside until the streetlights came on, right? There was this active energy that we had all the time. And being a young girl, I felt like I could express myself through sport in a really easy way. And at 12 years old, my mom and I just happened to stumble upon fencing by driving past a local high school. And we, at the time, didn't know what it was, but the athletes had on, you know, these long sleeve jackets, they had on pants, and my mom was like, don't know what it is, but perfect, right? <laughs> She's like, you know, we're Muslim, you're covered, I love I'm that tired story. of going yeah. to Models, you know, trying to buy these like long sleeve tops and trying to find spandex, like fencing, fencing will work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your mom, I, I was telling you, we were talking earlier in the office, your mom reminds me so much of my mom, right? It was like, you're not playing past the streetlights. You're not going to any sleepovers, right? Like the rules were the same in my house. It's nice to know it wasn't just me. No, it was not just you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you apparently it's not just the two of us either. It sounds like there are a lot of rules here. Um, but it was because your mother was very clear that a lot can happen to young women, especially young women of color, young black women. I think well, about Nia Wilson in Oakland, right? And there's yeah. a reason why why our mothers held us so tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also had a father who was a drug detective and I think saw a lot. Um, and a lot. <laughs> and he was like, not in my house. So you kind yeah. of, I mean, as a kid, it's funny. You don't understand like the, why your parents parent the way that they do. But now as an adult, I like look at my niece and nephews. I was like, you will never sleep over anyone's house, right? <laughs> to me, it totally makes sense. Yeah. But when you ask, you know, why the Young Readers Edition, I remember being a kid and not, and seeing very little representation um, and seeing, you know, having a hard time finding and drawing inspiration from all the male athletes that, you know, I would see, but also not seeing, you know, women of color within the sport of fencing or, um, even Muslim, like Muslim athletes, they were few and far between. I, I always thought that uh, Hakeem Olajuwon and Kareem um, Abdul-Jabbar, like fasting and playing basketball, I thought they were superheroes as a kid because I couldn't make it to like noon, like at school. I literally thought I was like, you know, nearing death, trying to make it to lunchtime while fasting. So um, for now, kids today to see a female in that position, to see, you know, not just see me there but to hopefully see themselves and yeah. to unconsciously grab their inspiration um in the space of sports where traditionally not only are we as people of color um still to this day not wholly accepted 
um, but also as Muslims. Yeah. I always think it's kind of wild that in 2015, 16, 17, 18, we're still experiencing firsts, right? I mean, you made history, which is incredible, but then you ask yourself, why wasn't this history made years ago, right? Um, and so when you talk about people being able to be what they can see, hopefully we're not just seeing you, right? That we'll see lots of people. But I wonder how you think about the influence for people who are not necessarily like you, right? Who can learn and expand the understanding of folks who carry your identities from the story that you're telling. Yeah, and it's, it's not just even, I, I don't think my story is, you know, specifically for for athletes or specifically for people of color, spe specifically for Muslims. I, I would say that um, it's a story of resilience. Yeah. There are so many times in my career where, or just even as a kid, I was told I didn't belong. Like my really early memories in the sport of fencing are ones of, you know, shouldn't you be playing basketball because you're black? Mm. Or, you know, the parents of other athletes saying that um, asking the officials if my hijab was safe for their kids to play. And I never really understood that correlation. But as an adult, I'm like, ah, you you were trying like you were afraid that I would beat your kids. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it was like a, a way like, a you know, it was really a form of bullying and yeah. harassment to yeah. try to, like, knock you off your game. Yeah. Um, and I want people to see Muslim women in a different light. I, I've grown tired of this age-old narrative that all Muslim women uh, wear hijab, which is not true, that we're all Arab, I'm not Arab, right? Um, I'm, America's the only home that I know. I'm African-American, like for generations and generations and generations, my family has been here. This is the only home that we know. And, you know, I'm, I'm not oppressed. I choose to wear hijab. This is a conscious decision that I make. And I'm tired of the conversation always being around um, women's bodies and people and society wanting to control us in a sense of, you know, because you choose to wear that, we feel as if someone has stolen your freedom. And it's like, what more, what more freeing than the choice to wear what I want? And um, so I feel like this is an opportunity to tell a story that's unique. Um, again, that's one of struggle and tr and triumph, but also to hopefully encourage and inspire other people to chase their dreams. Yeah. There's so many different times in my career where it would have been easier to walk away um, and to say, you know what, this is too much. Yeah. Like the, the harassment that I experienced, the depression that I was experiencing, the anxiety that I was overwhelmed with. I was like, you know what, this is too much. It's easier for me to walk away from this yeah. um, and maintain some sanity. Uh, but I, I think, it, you know, um, even reading, you know, still reading the story and having to talk about it, it um, is therapeutic in a way because I know that it's helped me to kind of face these realities that I've experienced and talk about them. And hopefully other people can find strength in, in my stories. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about not giving up, right, because there were I mean, especially when, I, when you are starting to move out onto the international stage, uh, you had a nine to five and what I call a five to nine. So you had the nine to five to actually fund the five to nine. You had to teach, you were coaching at your old high school in order to actually pay for all of these competitions. That in and of itself is too much for a lot of people. And then on top of that, like you said, you're dealing with harassment, discrimination, bigotry in this sport that you love so much. What was it for you that kept you going? Yeah. Um, you know, I get the question of uh, that question a lot. If, if I love the sport of fencing or people, I think people assume that I do. And um, I don't. I don't love the sport at all, actually. Um, I think that I've always had an affinity for competition and I'm 
so driven by people who doubt me. Um, I've learned to use that uh, as a source of motivation. I've, you know, been told that I don't belong uh, in the sport, that I'm too old. Like my first international competition was at 23. I'd never, when I graduated from college and I started training and breaking on this journey of, of qualifying for a national, a national team or the hopes to, um, I had no national ranking, I had no international ranking, and um, it was really going against the, the norms that were created within the fencing community. All of my Olympic teammates that you that you saw in 2016, they've all been on national teams and cadet teams, junior teams, uh, have been to world championships and have all this experience. And here I was, you know, when I graduated 21 and training until 23, I'd never had any of those experiences. So there was all this doubt surrounding my abilities. And I've always been really driven by that because I'm a workhorse at heart. I feel like, like in the classroom as a kid, um, you know, in the pool, like with my brother and my sisters, like playing basketball, football, whatever. And now as an athlete in fencing, I always want to outwork everyone because one of the cool things about sport is that, um, and especially in an individual sport, you only have to, you, the only person you can blame is yourself. I can lose and be frustrated, but the only person I have to look to is myself. And that, you know, extends itself uh, to training. It's like, I can work as hard and put in as much as I want to get out of it. So if I want, you know, to find myself on the podium at the Olympics, I better I better make sure I'm putting in Olympic level training to get there. You there was a story that you told from when you were coaching and your sister was on the team, uh, and some of because some of that discrimination and bigotry didn't just come from other families who knew you were, you all were going to beat their child. It was also officials, right? It was referees and other coaches, uh, and and you told the story about her paperwork supposedly being lost, and therefore she couldn't fence. We all know that paperwork wasn't lost, but you had to go and present new paperwork. You were already prepared for that moment because you knew that was coming. Um, and she, 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 you got her in there and she was thanking you profusely and you said, don't thank me, just win, right? It struck me in that moment though that you said, I wanted to argue, but I didn't. And throughout the book, there were lots of times when it would have been totally human to fight back, to argue with somebody, but you chose to channel that in another way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think for a lot of us, when we deal with discrimination, it's hard to not go with our first reaction. Yeah. You know, there, there's so much energy in hating or disliking someone or trying to constantly that that to fight that feeling of defending yourself and um at some point i've i've made this conscious decision that i was just going to try to let it all go because it wasn't wasn't adding anything to my performance not just as an athlete but even as a coach in that moment so my sister um who i coached for two years of high school uh, before we, before she was to, uh, about to go on a really big competition, uh, a high school competition, um, you know, one of the other coaches, you know, approached the bout committee, like unbeknownst to us, uh, to ask for paperwork that said it was okay for the, the paperwork comes from the board of education, saying that it was permissible for my sister to to participate in hijab that she was wearing it for religious reasons, and at this point, like my sister, I mean, she was. Uh, I think two or three times state champion. Like everyone knew who my sister was. Like my sister, like Marshall, a very talented athlete. Everyone knew who she was. But this was just a way to like intimidate. It's like we were we're gonna try to throw her off her game, or like you know the the best thing for them would be for her to be kicked out. 
um, because I, I wouldn't have been prepared as a coach, but I had the paperwork. But it was just kind of like last minute scrambling right before she has defense. And imagine the pressure and um, mental, I think, heartache or uh, obstacle that's thrown in front of her as an athlete. Just to think about all that when her peers, who may be white, who may not be Muslim, aren't faced with the same struggles, just get to kind of exist as kids and practice and get ready to compete and have smiles on their face. And for her, it's like, this kid is on the brink of tears, on the brink of tears because of, to me, a coach who's a bully, you know? And it's not just, you know, on the local level or what you see throughout the book on the Olympic level. This is even within high school. These are the type of, um, I would say, experiences that I had as, as a not just as a woman of color, but as a, a, a Muslim female athlete coming through the sport of fencing, that I had um, the burden of, of even coaching my sister through it because it's one thing for it to happen to me. I'm like, anyone who knows me and my family, when it comes to my mom and my sisters, I'm like such a mama bear. Like I'm very protective. And with my sister, I like, it. that's like the, if you want to like ruffle my feathers, that's one way to do it is like, you know, mess with my sister. I'm like very protective of her because I think you know, she's such a kind person. Yeah. So it's really hard for me to see um, people be, you know, um, intentional with uh, their their efforts, you know, in, in trying to throw her off her game. And, and really one of these seasons that she was having, I mean, that year she won a state title. Uh, and it's just out of, of talent and determination because to have to compete um, under those circumstances and, and to fight those mental, you know, obstacles that no one else has, um, it can be really frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about the journey. You've arrived at the Olympics. How are you feeling? Are you worried? Are you afraid? Are you excited? Are you determined? Are you all of those things at once? Walk us through that day, that moment. Um, so like really quick story, I... At the Olympic qualification, or not at the Olympic qualification, after the Olympic qualifiers happen, I qualify for the team, I'm at a training camp, uh, and we're about to leave for the Olympics. Uh, the, the morning of, we were due to leave. One of my closest friends got flagged by a World Anti-Doping Association um, and was accused of doping and didn't get to compete in the Olympics. So um, long story for her, long story short, it was like, whoopsies, are bad, you weren't. You, you didn't dope, but the Olympics were long gone by then, um, so she didn't get to compete. But for me, in that moment of finding that out for her, I always felt like it was fleeting, like someone could come and snatch the rug from underneath you. So I felt very anxious leading up to the Olympics. I was like, oh my gosh, is I knew that my friend wasn't doping, but I'm like, man, is this a conspiracy? Is someone like, you know, pouring something in everyone's water? Um, so I was very anxious the whole time because I had prayed about this moment for so long that I was so fearful that something would happen and, and it would be taken away like an injury or like dope, like who knows. So um, anyway, it didn't feel real to me until I walked in uh, opening ceremonies. And to be there in that moment with all of your like fellow, you know, American athletes and people from different places and different sports, um, these different ethnicities and different religious beliefs. and. Uh, different worldviews. It just felt like, man, this is the America that I know. This is the first time that kids out there will get to see someone in hijab walking with the with Team USA. And I know how transformative it can be to see uh, a moment like this because I know what it would have done for me as a kid. What did you do to silence those anxieties so that you could walk away with the medal? Yeah. 
Um, well, individual didn't go as planned, and I lost my second match. But I mean, I lost. Um, I'd competed. I, I lost to a French woman, and we'd like I'd beaten her all season. It's the Olympic Games. I was like, every single match you see in the Olympics is hard. Every single one. I could have drawn anybody, and it would have been a tough match um, because it's very hard to qualify for the Olympics. So it's like the best of the best in the world. You compete, and my second match, I lose. Um, and I was okay. Like, I felt like even when I was doing interviews after, they're like, man, you must be heartbroken. And they're trying to lead you into this dark, slippery slope of like, you know, really negative answers. And they're like trying to draw tears out of you. They're like, man, your life sucks right now. <laughs> and I am not that person. You know, I, um, you know, throughout the Olympic qualification, I f feel like I was being tested the entire time. Um, not just by, you know, the coaching staff, by um, my teammates, also by myself. Like, you know, mentally, there's so many things. Like, I feel like we can get in our own way. And my biggest challenge was being my own cheerleader throughout this process and reminding myself that I'm capable, that I'm strong, that I've trained enough, that I've slept enough, that I've eaten enough. I was like, you can do this. And I just kept telling myself that all the time. And even in the face of defeat, I also reminded myself, I'm like, it's okay. And um, I think that that's one of the things that I've learned through sport and that, you know, the, the losses may come as often as the wins. And you have to learn how to, um, take them as teaching moments. Like, and that's why I think I love sport and that I can always grow and learn something after a loss. And um, I forget your original question. But <laughs> here we are. But you, but you said what needed to be said. Right, so we're exactly. good. That's what I was thinking. Which, I, which I, I think what's so powerful though is we continue to learn about you as I learned in reading the book. And as you said in the very beginning, it's actually not about fencing. It's not even about the Olympics, right? Those things were not the end. They were the means to the end, right? And the end is actually inspiring people, showing people what's possible, providing inspiration around resilience and discipline and joy and excitement in what you're doing as well. Um, and so before we open it up to actually allow folks to ask questions, I wanna ask you two last things. Um, you know, you have a Barbie, a Barbie. You have a clothing line and you got an Olympic medal. I have exactly zero of those things. Uh, what, are, what are you most proud of? Um, you know, I, you know, a lot of people think that the Olympic medal is like the shining moment, like my favorite thing that's ever happened. And to be honest, I feel so happy to have gone to the Olympics because I know, and you will know soon after you read the book, um, how hard that journey was. Like it could have easily not happened. Like I know that. And I know that every single moment in my life has been a gift from God and I'm so appreciative. Um, I know that there are so many different things that could have happened. Like you'll read about really serious, severe injuries that I've had uh, during Olympic qualification. I suffered from depression for a few years. Like there's so many different things that have happened in my career um, where I feel like that dream could have, you know, uh, easily disappeared uh, at the blink of an eye. So um, I'm also very excited about this Barbie doll. I'm like, who? I mean, it's a Barbie. Who would be Barbie. excited? Yeah. Well, I was the queen of Barbie growing up. I loved Barbies. <laughs> Play with them for an uncomfortably long time, and uh, I mean, I just I'm I'm excited. I remember being a kid, and 
my mom only bought us black and brown dolls. That was it. Only thing that Same. came through our household. Yeah. And so if I went to the toy store, like me, my sisters, my brother, and we go through the toy aisle and my brother gets whatever he wants, but we get to go to the Barbie toy aisle and only the two brown dolls they have, we already have, we get to go home with nothing, you know? So um, to have, you know, Muslim kids and non-Muslim kids, kids who fence and kids who don't, like black kids, non-black kids, all have the opportunity to buy this like fencing doll that wears a hijab, that chooses to wear hijab, I think is um, revolutionary. I'm really proud to be a part of Mattel in this moment because there's so many people, individuals, companies, who are choosing to stay silent. And I think it is uh, a really great accomplishment. I think it's uh, a moment of, of pride that we should each have uh, in in taking a stand against bigotry, taking a stand against racism, and choosing inclusiveness and diversity is important. Absolutely. So here's my last question before we open it up. Um, I once heard someone say that when it comes to the dream of freedom and of equity and of justice for all people, um, that they don't wanna just have hope, they wanna have a certainty. They wanna be certain that we are going to get there. And so as you look out ahead in the work that you're doing, in the young people that you have inspired, in the communities that you spend time with, what is giving you hope and what is giving you certainty? I didn't uh, tell her I was yeah. asking her this question. Right. I like you to sure surprise didn't. people with it. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I feel that my faith really has, it guides me and leaves me hopeful in every moment, even in moments of despair. I, I feel like my glass is always half full. So I'm hopeful we will get pa past this like awful place that we're in as a country. Um, and I'm certain that the American people will push forward and persist in this moment. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you. Okay. First of all, I want to say we're so proud of you. Mashallah. One question I had for a while, I was in a conversation with your mom years ago, and she said track was something that she required. And it stuck with me, and I always wanted to know why track and what is the connection between like running track and basically preparing you for life and and success in the future in your opinion i know it was your mom's statement I was like she's not here i know <laughs> i was like i know it's your mom's statement and it was a really fleeting conversation yeah. but in your opinion if you look back at running track what would you think like what was the significance of that being something that was required yeah well i have a, a cool story uh in my book about me running track and ah. um I won't give it all away, but okay. it's not one of, of triumph and Ooh. there's no medals involved. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea why she put us in track. Uh, I know there was a strong, like a track program, Jaguars. It was a club team. Okay. Uh, they were all black coaches. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was something that I remember my parents, like they had to pay into. So mm -hmm. when, my, uh, when my parents pay for something, it's kind of like, um, when you get out the car, it's their last reminder is not like, hey, go out there, good luck. It's like, hey, don't waste my money. <laughs> so, um, I think if anything, uh, track was a way for us to to learn how to run, to learn how yeah. to appreciate being out of breath and not thinking that you're on the verge of death. <laughs> that's what I got from track. Anyway. No, but that's profound in and of itself. Yes. But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, now. Assalamu alaikum. 
Yes. Uh, my name is Aleem. Um, I'm actually I'm from New York City, so tri-state represent. Nice. Um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you, you've, you're an Olympic medalist, you have a clothing company, you have a Barbie doll, now you have a book. What's, what's next for you? Oh, whoa. World domination. <laughs> um, so I'm actually executive producing a uh, series, um, a television series uh, with Players Tribune, which is Derek Jeter's media outlet, and Self Magazine through Condé Nast. And it'll, we'll be telling uh, the story of female athletes. I know what it's like to be uh, a woman in a smaller sport. I know that um, a lot of these athletes, the stories that we'll be telling, if they were men, we would all know their name um, and they would make infinitely more money. So I think it's important that we tell these stories and get the women the recognition that they deserve and also uh, provide a space for the women to tell their stories so that like the young girls that we have here, they can see themselves outside of traditional sports like soccer and basketball, but like uh, lesser known ones that are equally as, as cool. I was going to say. No, no, not appropriate. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, um, I just wanted to say before anything else, you're just a huge role model for me and all of my friends. Like, Aww. especially like I wouldn't stop talking about during like I'm pretty sure all my enti entire chemistry class just heard your entire name during the entire Olympics. I wouldn't Aww. just stop talking Aww. about Thank you. you. Um, but I just want I was just wondering, um, who are some women that you look up to for inspiration? Um, well, you, first of all, that's, that's really kind of you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, growing up, I always uh, looked to Serena and Venus. I thought they were so cool. Um, they were really young. And even though they're not too far off in age from me, they were really young. And when they took over the tennis world and took it by storm and were really unapologetic about who they were. So I think it allowed myself to see myself um, in the space of elite athletics in a way that I don't think I could see before. Um, there, I think when I think of millennials in our generation, I think uh, when it comes to black women, like they're the face. Uh, they were the first for me in my mind. So I really appreciate them for that. And now I feel, uh, to be honest, really inspired by, by our young girls out there. I know that it's difficult in this moment um, to choose being yourself. Uh, and I don't even know how you guys are doing it in the age of social media because I, my life cannot hang on how many people like a photo. I can't. So um, I think that it's difficult in this moment, um, but at the same time, I think there's no bigger act of resilience um, and rebellion than, than choosing to be yourself and being unapologetic about that. So I find inspiration in young girls and young, young men out there um, because it is a brave thing right now to choose yourself over everything that we're experiencing. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, you're so cute. Uh, so how did you like get into fencing? Oh, okay. Well, I'm so happy that you've asked. I like your dress. Thank you. I um, got into fencing because my parents wanted to find a sport for me to play where I could wear hijab. Um, and once I put my mask on, like no one saw my hijab. I looked like everyone else on my team. And for me, fencing made me feel like a superhero uh, because it was all about how good you could be, how fast you could be, how far you could lunge. And it had nothing to do with whether you were a girl or a boy or whether you wore hijab, it was really about how good you could be. 
Oh. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Um, when you were um, starting fencing or doing other sports, what advice do you have for other girls, uh, other young Muslim girls to fit in when they're doing sports and not feel like an outstander? Yeah. Um, I would say don't feel pressure to fit in. I My whole life, I felt like a square and like life was a circle. And I was trying to like, you know, I feel like society was trying to force me to fit. And people around me people around me always told me I was different and at some point I learned to embrace that I was like you know what I love the color of my hijab today I love you know how tan my skin is getting right now in the mm -hmm. summer I learned to embrace those things and not and not allow society's limited expectations of what I could do and who I could be change the way I felt about myself and um, I remember when I was a kid I used to my mom was like really into like buying me, you know, pink Reeboks and putting on a pink floral shirt and a pink hijab. Like I was that kid. So I was like super Muslim and like super woke before woke was a thing. And you just have to embrace it. Don't let people tell you that you're not enough as you are or you need to change parts of yourself to conform. Like you'll see in a few years, you're the people that you think are like super important and matter. They don't. Um, I know that people you'll read especially in the young readers edition of my book that there were people who I really thought were my friends and now I look back and I realize that's not it's not what a friend looks like you know friends are meant to build you up and not break you down so surround yourself with good people and I think that that strength to be yourself will will start to uh, get stronger and stronger each day thank you I, the, the only thing I will add is Anybody who ever changed the world did not fit in. If you look at history, if you look at any hero, especially this one right here, they didn't fit in, right? So be glad that you stand out. That means you're destined for something special. Assalamu alaikum. Um, so what other career choices would you consider if you didn't do fencing? <laughs> president, question, say right? president. <laughs> You want you want to run for president? I mean, I'll vote for you. Well, I f I feel like now we should all be running for president. Amen. President, state senator, yeah. mayor, all of it. Everything. Um, you know, I don't. You know, if I wasn't fancy, it's so funny because as a kid, for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a doctor, and um, yeah, I I never in a million years imagined I'd be a professional athlete. I never thought I would write a book. So if if you can learn anything from what has happened to me in my life, please know that when things happen the way that they do, it is from Allah. And um, that's that's the way I operate. That's the way I roll. I, I try not to, to hang on things that miss me because I know that they weren't meant for me. And I don't know what happens next, but uh, I truly believe that I have more to offer and I have more to do. And I don't think fencing was it. I know that there's something great out there for me and I'm still searching for what it is. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Um, I myself am a high school athlete. Um, I do track and volleyball, and um, especially with volleyball, since like the attire isn't very modest or everything, I I stand out a lot like amongst all the other girls, and I get a lot of like negative looks and comments and everything for it. And I just want to know like, what should be the first step I should do like once I experience something negative? Like what? How should I go about like 
thinking of it as like nothing at all. So I played volleyball, so I'm happy to know there's a fellow volleyball player in the room. Um, but I did play volleyball in high school, and I played once I really liked volleyball, but also my really closest friends in high school played. And it was funny because these friends that I'm talking about, some of them made me feel uncomfortable having to wear long sleeves underneath the team tank top. And I always wear sweatpants and I have my hijab. So mm-hmm. I, under- I I know what you mean by feeling out of place and getting stares, especially when we would travel to um, other schools. Because uh, sometimes you would interact with kids who had never met a Muslim before, had no idea what a hijab was, why you were wearing sweatpants and everyone else has on like, you know, cut off shorts, yeah. whatever those are, spandex. Um, I think that uh, my advice to you would be to think of negative comments and the stares and things like water and kind of let them roll off your back and try to figure out a way not to let them affect you. You know, uh, it's easier said than done, but I know that this is something that I've even struggled with as a member of Team USA is learning how to let go of things I can't control and I can't control what people think about me. I'm literally out of my control. So I don't care what people think. Um, that's my motto now. I'm like, eh, I don't really care what you think. I'm doing what I want. Um, I want to play volleyball. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to spike this ball and you better be ready to receive this spike, right? So. I would just say, again, like the the young man who was just here, you just have to embrace being yourself and honestly learn how to reject any negativity that comes in your life. Yeah. Thank you. Um, First of all, everything you've done is like really inspiring and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. But I'm a fencer and I'm trying to like be like you. So do you have any advice on how to get started? Yes, I want you to be better than me, first of all. (laughs) I tell everybody I'm just a girl from Jersey who was out there working hard. Um, I'm not a prolific, profound like fencer in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, My younger sister is actually super talented. I just tell people I worked harder than her. And that's why I'm the Olympian. Um, But I would just say, like, roll with it. It's all about working hard. Just try to try to um, take everything as a teaching moment. Like when you lose a match, like the tears will come, but just learn from them. You know, I've uh, one of the things that you'll read about is I had a uh, a book, like a small book that I picked up uh, the U.S. Olympic training center and not only did it have the u.s olympic rings on the front and i kind of hid it from everyone because you don't really get olympic rings until you you know get the rings um, until you qualify for the team so i didn't want anyone to know i had this book but it was also this book that i kind of you know took notes about all of my opponents every single opponent on the world circuit um, i knew their strengths i knew their weaknesses um, and what I did to beat them or how I lost to them, the score of the match. Like I have this really, really thick journal of, of my career. And um, I wish I hadn't known that earlier as a kid, you know, uh, that I could actually take notes from my competitions and write down things that I'm really good at or write down things that my opponent is really good at and how I could learn how to combat those on the strip. Um, so I would say maybe try to start a fencing journal. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Analytics, I love it. Jersey girl, I'm here yeah. for you. Nice, thank you. Jersey City. Oh, look at you. Word. So I actually went to the Olympics and had every intention on seeing a fencing match. Were you competing in the Olympics? Oh, too? God, no. I was like, no, no, no. I was no, like, no, no. there were two black girls in fencing. I didn't see you. No, 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 no. 
though when I was in Brazil, some people I came see. up to me and was like, "Are you here for the Olympics?" I'm like, "Yeah." They're like, "What competition?" I'm like, "No, I'm yeah. I'm visiting." Just when like, you're when you're when you're black and on Team USA, they think you're a track athlete. That too. They they're like, "Excuse too. me, track is this way." I'm like, "I'm a fencer." Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, w I was unable to see your match, which really made me angry, scheduling and whatnot. But I was wondering, it was such a massive event. How were you able to like stay centered and were you able to truly take in like the magnitude of the competition or the, just the event or just the moment? Um, I know that our individual competition wasn't until five or six days after opening ceremonies. And um, I mean, you're, we're training, we're literally training twice a day and some off-site, like not even near the um, the Olympic Village. So we don't get to see the TV, the, you don't see anything. It's like very secluded and you're really like, you get to, you get to have the opportunity to be myopic in your training and your eating and what you're doing. And I feel like I didn't experience the magnitude of it until I actually competed. And that's probably why I lost because I was like, what is this? <laughs> I was like, we have, we have spectators, this is fencing. So like to see people screaming like in the bleachers, I was shocked. I was like, weren't used. I wasn't used to it. But I think by the time I competed in the team event, um, my body had like kind of acclimated to the noise and the craziness and the hype of the Olympic Games. And then it was just kind of like fun. It was like, man, I get to I get to fence in front of people. Exciting. I get to fence in front of my family. Even more exciting. And to bring home a medal for our country was just like. It's hard to explain. And there's this video that when I go to speaking event or engagements or appearances, they'll play this video. And to this day, it still like brings me to tears because um, never in a million years did I think this would be my life, that uh, the Olympics would ever happen for me. So I just feel like very grateful. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Um. How did you get inspired to do fencing? Um, you know, it. I think for me, fencing was always a means to an end. When I started, I wanted to use it to go to a good school. I wanted to, you know, go to one of the top schools in the country. And then um, after college, I wanted to see Team USA change. I wanted to see a woman of color on the women's saber team. I wanted to see someone Muslim at the Olympic Games or so a Muslim woman at the Olympic Games. So really it became um, a game of, of just chasing a dream and trying to outrun everyone's limited expectations of who I could be. Hi. Um, can you tell me what you're doing with State Department? Yeah. So um, in 2012, I was called upon by former Secretary Clinton uh, to join her council. Uh, I was empowering women and girls through sports initiative. And through that council, I had the opportunity to travel to, I think, about four or five different countries. And for me, because I was in training, I always um, piggybacked on on a world, onto a World Cup. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, prior to competing in, in Moscow or Dakar, like Senegal or Russia, or, you know, even in the UK, I had the opportunity to work with um, women from underserved communities, mostly girls. In Moscow, I work with um, the Paralympic team and just telling my story about being a minority member of Team USA, but hopefully changing the world through sport and the way we view girls' in involvement in sport, especially in uh, more developing countries than anything. Um, now I'm a member of the President's Council um, on Health, Fitness, and Nutrition, and I was appointed by President Obama 
Um, I know that a lot of my fellow appointees were since um, their positions were taken from them uh, by the current administration. I haven't gotten such a letter. Now that I've said it, I probably will. Uh, <laughs> but I haven't right, done anything um, okay. with the State Department since this current uh, current administration. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Shout out to Notre Dame fencing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the one I, okay, awesome. So I'm currently in a, I'm in cybersecurity and I'm just beginning my career. And that's a career that's not a lot of women, not a lot of black women, and then definitely not a lot of black women that are Muslim with hijab. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like an extreme minority and people ask me like, okay, can you do that as someone who's like you? So how I'm kind of getting overwhelmed with everything that I need to do and writing articles and doing this and beginning my career and going to events and meeting people. And I know you had a nine to five, and after that, you, you know, you did your training. So how do you keep yourself from being overloaded, and all the expectations on you, and basically making a me time and making sure that your mental health is intact so that you can do the things that you want to do? Um, you know, I think the work that you're doing is really commendable. I know that I struggled with with finding that balance, and uh, I talk about issues of of mental health and my experiences with it in the book. I know that that's not a conversation that we have, and certainly not in the black community, definitely not in the Muslim community. And uh, for me, I found that my me time was being alone and spending time with my family. Yeah. I jeopardized or lost a lot of friends uh, in qualifying for the Olympic team, and that not everyone around you wants to understand your journey. And in their attempts to like try to understand it, um, you know, you may lose friends in, in the process. And I don't know what, you know, a healthy social relationship or healthy like social life looks like because right. I feel like for a really long time I didn't have one. Right. Like yeah. my social life one. was, you know, spending time with my family because I travel, you know, three weeks out of the month. So um, I know that it, it's really difficult to be one of the only in that space. But again, I just know that you deserve to be there. Yeah. Um, and... I try to exude that, like that confidence. People can't take your confidence from you. So I just try to walk into every space like that. All right, thank you. Yeah. There's this quote from Audre Lorde. Oh, absolutely applaud. Um, there's this quote from Audre Lorde where she says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. So being good to yourself is also part of your work, right? right? And you actually can't be here to do it if you're not caring for yourself. So recognize that your existence is a real form of resistance in that way and, and, and take care of yourself. We have time for about two more questions and then um, we're gonna close up so that you can sign some books and hug some people and me included. Okay. All right. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum, Ibtahaj. Good to see you again. Nice and happy to be sporting a Luella. I, know. I feel like you need to come up here so everyone come on can see. Do you mind? She has on my clothing company, as do I, LuellaShop.com. You look beautiful. We did not plan this. Yes. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you, Ibtahaj, if there's a, a nugget of wisdom or a lesson that you may have learned from an elder, a parent or a coach or a mentor that keeps coming back to you when you are feeling down or you need that extra motivation. You know, it could be just a, a small incident or a story or or something that you learned from an elder in, in your in your life. What what is that story that 
reminds you to keep going. Yeah. Um, so around the um, Olympic qualification, or right before the Olympic qualification process uh, kicked off, so it starts a year before the actual Olympics. Yeah. So we start our Olympic qualification process started in April of 2015. And I remember um, going to Peter Westbrook, who is a mentor in my life. I fence for his foundation in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you know, Peter, if I'm not top three in in the country, you know, they're not going to take me to the Olympics. And by they, I meant like the the coaching staff, uh, the national coaching staff. And Peter, not Muslim, he's like a deacon at his church. He turns to me and he says, you know, they have nothing to do with whether or not, you know, you go to the Olympics, whether or not you compete at the games, you know, that is something that will come from God. Mm-hmm. And it really resonated with me because it allowed me to free myself from the pressure of having to perform oftentimes by myself, you know, not just fence for myself, but then after that I have to fence for my team and, and always feel like either ostracized if we, you know, if we lost, mm-hmm. if I was the one who helped our team to a win, made to feel, you know, not a part of it and not included, um, I, it kind of allowed me to free myself from those, from those, those feelings and those right. sentiments. And I made this decision to kind of be happy all the time. It didn't matter if I lost or if I won, or, mm-hmm. you know, if I had been, you know, on week number three in China without my friends or my family, I was choosing to be happy. And I was allowing things to happen the way that they're supposed to and truly believing in in the idea that that we don't have control over these things, that they happen the way that they're supposed to. Right. And that doesn't mean that, like, you know, you don't work hard, you don't put in everything you can, mm-hmm. but it means that, you know, if you do happen to you know have a moment of despair or loss and when it comes to me as an athlete it's like embracing every moment you know and and thinking that things could always be far worse right right? and i know that whether i made the olympic team or or didn't make the olympic team i was going to be okay like mentally i was going to be okay and a lot of that has to do with that reminder from peter yeah thank you Last question. Hi, I'm Sarah. It's so nice to meet you. You're like a really big role model. And um, I'm from the Bay Area, from San Francisco in California. And um, I'm a foilist, and I'm just beginning to be in competitions and stuff. And yeah. And um, I'm so nervous. Anyway, so. Um, Doing great. <laughs> thank you. So um, usually some. Well, sometimes I'm like the only girl at my fencing practices, or if I am, there's like three other or two other girls, and the rest are just boys or whatever. And um, anyway, how do you think we should get more girls not only interested in fencing and but into other sports as well? Yeah, um, I think that my parents literally forcing each of us, my brother and my sister, into sport was one of the best things that they could have done for us as kids, because especially as girls, we're fighting all these different things. Um, you know, like the media telling us that we're not skinny enough, we're not white enough, our eyes aren't blue enough, our hair's not blonde enough, uh, we're not tall enough. And we have to also fight that within like, you know, the boundaries of our own, you know, friendships, like in schools. And um, I think that sport taught me not only to appreciate my own body um, as like a curvier kid, but also um, to appreciate my friends and what they could bring to the table. Like not everyone was going to get that ball in in volleyball. And that was frustrating for me, which is why I'm a fencer now. Um, But I think that it allowed me to 
to not only um, respect other people's boundaries and what they can bring to the table, um, but also appreciate them for, for what they can bring to the table as well as teammates and as individuals. And um, I only train uh, with guys. Um, I'm better than most of them. And the ones that I'm not better than, you better believe I'm trying to beat them at practice. So don't feel intimidated by being the only girl at fencing practice. Um, I think you should totally be encouraged and motivated to beat them every night at practice. And um, how do we get more girls in sport? Uh, I think that that's something we should ask every single parent in the room. I think that, you know, it's a really big problem within the Muslim community that we're only putting our boys in, you know, Friday night basketball, which is not really them playing sports, right? We need our kids to be active. We need them to be healthy because, uh, I don't know, to me, you're teaching these things that they can carry with them throughout their lives, like eating healthy, you know, respecting your body, the one body that you have, um, hopefully fighting childhood obesity, diabetes, and all these different ailments that people see as they get older and then all of a sudden they try to correct. When really, if you implement these things at a really young age, it becomes far easier to avoid, hopefully, you know, potentially um, threatening like diseases and, and health issues down the line. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I don't know about you all, but I'm so excited to see what you conquer next. Um, excited to see this series and thankful for all of the gifts that you've given us today and throughout your career. So Thanks, thank you so Ricky. much. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.